You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. This week, Adam Watts and I, a young man who was a Marine who was just baptized into Christ, husband of Sydney, he and I were sitting at a coffee shop reading a portion of Apostle Peter's first letter together. And my heart was burning as we took in every single word. Adam and I began lamenting what we saw in Christ followers right now this week, including, in, including us, Adam and I. And we wondered what American society would be like if the church trusted really that Jesus is Lord and embraced His call to peacemaking, humility, and neighborly love. We could not help but wonder what it would be like if the church embodied this word that we had read from Peter, especially in the presence of those currently hurting and racked by anxiety and fear. And as I've asked our Father what to say this week, I feel as though I should carry on with this text and invite all of us to sit beside it, along with two other texts, in the hope that Williamsburg Christian Church, all of us, that we will become a non-anxious people in a very anxious time. So that we can be a non-anxious presence in a very anxious time. And do it for the good of others we encounter every day, especially the vulnerable. So, 1 Peter chapter 3. And I ask that you tend to every word of the text. And if you don't have the handout, please... um, Randy, would you mind getting the handouts there? Raise your hand because it's going to be important that you have the text, if you will, please. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Now finally, all of you should be like-minded and sympathetic. Now, let me pause. The word sympathetic there, a a better English word would be empathetic. Because the word in the Greek, sympathetic there, means to be connected with another's pain. Or connected with another's feelings. It's a much deeper word than just a sympathy card. It's a relational word, which is what empathy is. It requires relational connectedness, okay? So please keep that in mind. So if now finally all of you should be like-minded and sympathetic, should love believers and be, say it with me, compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil, or say this with me, or insult for insult. Just let that sit for a minute, please. On the contrary, read it with me, giving a blessing. Since you were called for this. Since we were called for that. That we can inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life, listen to this. And for the one who wants to love life and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And he must turn away from evil and do what is good. He must seek peace and, say it with me, pursue it. Not peacekeeping, peacemaking. Totally different ballgame. Not passivity, pursuit. Now, I can't screw this text up too bad. That's what I love about this text. It's going to be hard for me to really screw this one up. We're just going to screw it up in our interpretation of how we practice it, but not in what it says. That's why it's been burning in me, man. 
He must seek peace and pursue it. Say this with me, please. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their request. Righteous there does not mean morality. Righteous means just. It means social justice makers. That's what the word means. It means that. It means rightness on social levels. It's been in the Greek for 2,000 years. And it comes from a Hebrew word called tzedakah, which means justice done on social levels. It means those who pursue making right what has been made wrong in society, speaking into the lives of the vulnerable, the last, least left out, and lonely, standing for what is good and right according to the will of God. He says, I hear those people. I hear those people. I hear those people. I'm going to die of an aneurysm today. Shouldn't have drank that second cup of coffee. It's been burning in me, man. But here's what he knows. Okay, listen to Peter's honesty because he's writing to Christians who were living under the persecution of Nero. Remember that? Remember last week? Nero cutting off heads, dipping them in tar, burning them on lights. You know that guy? So he says, he knows, he's not giving them romanticism. So he says, and you will... And who will harm you if you're deeply committed to do what is good? And I am sure everybody read that and goes, Nero. Which is why Peter said, but even if you should suffer for, say it, justice for doing right, for standing on the side of the oppressed, for taking up the cause of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor, the abandoned, the marginalized, even if you stand on the side of those and society says to you that's not patriotic, that's not obedient, that's not what it is. He says, even if you suffer for doing that, say it with me, you are blessed. Blessed are the persecuted, Jesus said, remember? And then he says, read this with me, do not fear what they fear or be disturbed. Nero's in charge. But do not fear what they fear or be disturbed. But honor the Messiah as Lord. Jesus is Lord. In your what? Hearts. Don't say platitudes like God is in control as if that's what that means. When it says that, when we have been saying every week that Jesus is Lord, this is what I've been asking us. This is the point. Not that God's in control. That's not, that's not the language. This is the language. That the Lordship of Jesus will demand a different response to us come November 9th. No matter who the president would be. In hopes that the Lordship of Jesus would demand a different response to us on November 8th. But November 9th was coming. And all this relief some of us feel and all this hurt some of us feel needs to find its proper place under the Lordship of Christ in our hearts. Because the church will be the church. And the church has got to do church. And that's never changed. And it wasn't changing in Nero's reign either. And so he says then, go back to the text, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Like, think that through. Why are you still siding with the vulnerable when it's costing you your life, Christian people? Why are you losing your friends over the gospel, Christian people? That's what he's saying when he says give a defense for the hope. 
How are you not in fear, Christian people? How are you listening to... Why are you siding with the protesters, Christian people? Why are you siding with the people who are angry with the protesters, Christian people? Why are you trying to be peacemakers, Christian people? Why don't you choose a side? Choose a side, Christian people. Choose a side. Because, I mean, that's what our society wants us to do, right? Choose a side. Choose a side. Why are you choosing people instead of a side? See, that's what Christians are supposed to do. Choose people. Not sides. Which means we're going to be on all sides as the people of God bearing witness to the Lordship of Jesus. Which means we've got to give an answer for that when people ask. And this is where I struggle. Alright? Is when it says the however. Because Peter knows that Fred can be a jerk. However, Fred, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear so that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. Do this with gentleness and respect, which means I can't do snarky memes on Facebook. And share snarky articles or like them so that everybody can see that I liked them. So that when you are accused, those who denounce the Christian life will be put to shame. Read this with me. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust, the oppressed and the oppressor. See, now we're called to reconciliation. That he might bring you to God after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed, but honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Fear. I am still convinced that one of American society's greatest sicknesses, if not the greatest, is fear. Fear that the oil's going to run out. Fear that the food supply's going to cut short. Fear that we're going to run out of water, so we go take everybody else's. Fear that we're going to get blown up. Fear that we're going to die, which every doctor tells you one out of one people do. You know, fear, fear, fear. There are a lot of things I do not know. I do not know what the next four years will mean for any of us. I didn't know with Clinton, and I don't know with Trump. I don't know what the next four years will mean for our America's economy, for healthcare system, education system, or human services programs. And it matters a bit of the matter to me, too. And for many, this not knowing creates anxiety and fear. But what I have seen is that when fear is allowed to motivate us, it creates antagonisms and divisions among brother and sister and neighbor and neighbor because fear drives out love. So what I do know is that when Jesus is Lord and His church actually believes it, fear may drive out love, but love has the power to drive out fear. If the people of God will be the people of God first. There are a lot of things I do not know. I do not know what the next four years will mean for my friends living in the LGBTQ community, for my brown friends, my black friends, my immigrant friends, my friends living in poverty and homelessness, my friends who work in factories and what society is often called blue-collar jobs. I don't know. Plausibility structures that have been created, I don't, I don't know. And for many, this not knowing creates anxiety and fear. 
And what I have seen is that when fear is allowed to motivate us, it creates antagonisms and divisions among brother and sister, neighbor and neighbor, because fear drives out love. So what I do know is that when Jesus is Lord and His church believes it, it may be true that fear drives out love, but love has the power to drive out fear. What else I've come to believe is that the church has far too long mixed its civic passions and patriotism in with the purpose of the church. Since the days of Constantine, the church has played a formative role in society because the church has enjoyed some measure of presence in systems of power and government. And though many of our founding fathers were deists and humanists, some were indeed Christians. Consequently, the name God, whether little g or capital G, depends on whether they were the deist or the Christian, has found its way into our national liturgies, whether in song or proclamation or stamped upon our money. Almost every single president of the U.S., almost, not all, claims some sort of explicit Christian commitment. And tragically, and I mean that sincerely and intentionally, this has created generations of Christians who have fallen into the subtle trap of believing that government is a worthy institution in which we place our hope and security and freedom of religion. Many have come to rely upon the government to secure social change and a society of morality through legislation and policy, like Supreme Court justices. Even sermons have been preached as many pastors all across America have publicly endorsed candidates, to which I have not and I never will. But I will speak truth to all, because that is my job. And that is my calling as a Christian. But you've heard it in everyone from Franklin Graham to David Jeremiah, and I have no problem naming names of brothers and sisters. All the while, we, and I including myself, the church have been slowly led to believe that social and moral change somehow depends upon the kind of governing our government applies. The church has believed that. Despite the mass exodus from the church in America these past 20 years, despite the fact that many sons and daughters are no longer committed to faith in which we raise them, we have not awakened to the fact that in placing our hope in the government, which we would never say we have, but we have, we have, not, we have neglected our responsibility as a church. We have unknowingly stepped away from this, what the Scriptures teach as the purpose of the church, and the church's politic is all but lost. And as a result, Capitol Hill has overshadowed Calvary's Hill. And we didn't even know. Government, this institution set forth by the Creator, has come to mean way too much and carry too much weight in the lives of Christians and by extension the church. And our inner longing for peace and security has seduced us to place our hope in governing leaders. Somehow we've come to believe that the church's purpose is to take America back for God. And you are not going to find that in the Bible. It's not there. Somehow we've come to believe that. And inadvertently, we've sidelined the politics of Jesus and ethics of God's kingdom. And it's evidenced by the division the church has created. And Capitol Hill has still cast a shadow on Calvary's Hill, and it's become difficult to see clearly. Let me put it another way. For many Christians, even some of us, our notion of what it means to be a Christian, quote-unquote, society, has been bound up in kings, merchants, and missionaries. What I mean by that is government, capitalism, and clergy. We put too much hope in pastors too, man. Y'all have railed on that for six years too. Everybody knows how jacked up I am. As a result, what we consider, quote, a Christian society, please hear me, 
If we put all our hope in Christian society and morals and all these things and taking America back and keeping God in the pledge and all the money and all that stuff, putting prayer back in school, all those things we're concerned about, if that becomes our thing, and it has been for 50 years, if that remains our thing, then listen to the logic of how this works from a philosophical standpoint, from a political theory standpoint. That Christian society will last only and exactly as long as the political and commercial structures that uphold it. And it will eventually be chased away by legislative and social change that runs contrary to the Scriptures. A law will be passed or whatever, and all of a sudden God's out of America and we've got to take America back for God again. Put the right people in office, we'll bring him back. And you've heard it, as Christians have lamented, for years, how America has forgotten about God or kicked Him out of schools as if God's presence is contingent upon the permission of leaders. We've been deceived. But if our notion of what it means to be a Christian society is bound up in the reign of the risen Christ within, among, and between His people, in and through the church of Jesus Christ, then a truly Christian society will outlast all other political and commercial structures and will continue to usher in God's preferred future regardless of legislative and social change. The kingdom of God is not fickle, will never falter, cannot, be, cannot fail, and those who confess Jesus as Lord has become the society of God and they will always be all right even if they suffer. God's presence and provision cannot be bound up in a nation state. It never has been. Constantine got it all wrong. We've been undoing it since. Jesus pronounced that God's kingdom had broken in while Caesar was still in his White House calling himself Lord. And God has already declared that there is only one nation that will stand. It's what Peter calls God's holy nation, the kingdom of God, of which the church has become its citizens. The church is the society of God living in the midst of another government's society. Think about that. Just think about that. So what's the church to do? The church has long struggled living between two ruling governments. The kingdoms of men and the kingdom of God. Well, the writer of Hebrews has some directions. Look at your Hebrews text. Hebrews 13, verse 12. Therefore Jesus suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp or outside the gate, bearing his disgrace. Listen to that. This text can be lost on us if we're not careful. I'll read it again. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate or outside the camp so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then, the church, let us then go to him outside the camp, outside the city gate. He's already, he's already with Jesus or he's already with God the Father. So when it says go with him, it means follow him. It means do what he did. Go outside the city gate. Go outside the camp. For we do not have a lasting city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Here's what it means. Here's what the text means. It's real simple. It's loud and clear. Christians move toward need and injustice, not comfort or what is socially acceptable, because that is not contingent upon who the president is. But just know that it may put you outside the city gate. That's, that's what it means. 
Move toward need and injustice, not comfort or what is socially acceptable. We live for a lasting city so we can go outside the gate. The language outside the gate offers a civic and political image, one that portrays danger and risk. The central call to us in this is to go outside the gate and take on the sufferings of Jesus. And Jesus suffered for injustice. He was called a criminal, and it put him on a cross. He was beaten, and it put him on a cross. He said that Caesar was not Lord, that Jesus actually is, and it put him on a cross. And what we're told in this text is that Christians are to join Jesus in His sufferings, which will include taking on the injustices of a falling world in order to make right what has been made wrong and unjust. That's the just people thing again that Peter was getting at. A prophetic community who tells the truth. Because Jesus suffered outside the gate, move out from inside where security and familiarity and ease is found. Christian, that relief you feel, it's false relief. It's always going to be. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It is. That hurt you feel, it's real. But don't allow your affections to be placed in something else other than the Lordship of Jesus. Because whoever could have been on that would have made you feel relieved would still be false relief. Because your job as a Christian and mine doesn't change. Because He died there to sanctify us, we don't have to do this in our own strength. So what does this look like? We'll turn back to the Sermon on the Mount then. Where there are enemies, the church should love because the politics of Jesus tells us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Where there is hatred and bigotry or the dehumanization or demeaning of another person, the church should call it out in love, make for peace, and do the things that promote justice because the politics of Jesus tells us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Where there are foreigners and displaced people, the church should welcome them in love because the politics of Jesus tells us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Where there is violence to get others made in the image of God, the church should renounce it in love and cry out for reconciliation because the politics of Jesus tells us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Where there is abundance and plenty among us, the church should share it with those who do not have abundance or plenty because the politics of Jesus tells us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Where there is guilt and condemnation and regret, the church should offer mercy because we have received mercy from the God of heaven and earth. And because the politics of Jesus Jesus tells us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Where there is sin, the church should offer forgiveness and call the sinner to one who secured their forgiveness, who is Jesus Christ, because we have received ours from Him as well. And it is because the politics of Jesus tells us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. None of this is contingent upon who sits in some seat in some white house. This is contingent upon who sits on the throne of our hearts. This doesn't change. And in this particular time of American life, the church needs to remember that Jesus offers us as citizens of God's kingdom an invitation to a different way of being so that we will take up a different way of doing life in these United States. 
Matthew's gospel leads us to this. This Matthew 25 text on your, on your page is what scholars call a judgment text. In explanation of what judgment will look like when our king returns, Matthew says the king will sort out those who did justice, people call righteous, and those who did are promoted injustice, the people he will call the unrighteous. The people who explain away, oh, it's not that bad, I don't see it. Well, that girl who got punched in the face for being black, she saw it. I don't see it. It's, it's just what media is putting out there. Okay, I can introduce you. I can give you names if you'd like. Because I'm a pastor of plenty of people. I hear from more than one side. See, the people who are willing to step in and say wrong is wrong, that's us in the text here. This is a judgment text. Verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous, because they're just loving their neighbor as they love themselves, the righteous will ask Jesus, when do we do that? When do we see you hungry and feed you? When do we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer and say, I assure you, whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Kind of hard to misunderstand that, right? For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink, because I didn't fill out your proper paperwork. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in, because I wasn't from around here, wasn't born here, didn't seem safe. I was naked and you didn't clothe me because I had squandered all my own clothes. I, I was sick and in prison because I'd done things to hurt myself. You know, I made bad choices, but and you didn't take care of me. And they will too answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And then he will answer and say, I'll show you whatever you did not do for one of the least of these. You did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment with the righteous and the eternal life. So here's my point. American politics and national concerns will continue to invite us to negotiate this teaching. It will continue to politicize the very people exemplified in this text. The poor, the immigrant, the vulnerable, the sick, and the imprisoned. Jesus will one day ask his church, his holy nation, because that's the one he's concerned about mostly. What did you do for the least of these? And if we listen primarily to political leaders, as we may end, we may end up then with the wrong answer. And you've got to wrestle with every bit of the tension you feel as a result of this. But I will let you off the hook with the tension because it's very, very easy. If you wouldn't want it done to you, don't do it to somebody else. It's that simple. If you wouldn't want it done to your kid, don't do it to somebody else's kid. It's really that simple. Love your neighbors, you love yourself, or treat others as you'd want to be treated. This isn't rocket science. It's not complicated. It's just hard. 
If we listen primarily to political leaders, we'll end up with the wrong answer when Jesus asks this question. But if we listen to King Jesus and obey Him, we'll always end up with the right answer. Always. So Peter says, First Peter 3, Now finally, all of you should be like-minded and sympathetic, should love believers and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult. On the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this, so that you will then inherit the blessing. For the one who wants to love life and see good days and must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, he must turn away from evil and do what is good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their request. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. And who will harm you if you're deeply committed to doing good? Well, somebody might. So even if you should suffer for doing justice, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed, but honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect keeping your conscience clear so that when you are accused, those who denounce your version of Christianity, your theology, or your sermon will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for once and for all, the righteous and the unrighteous, that he might bring you back to God after being put to death in the fleshly realm, made alive in the spirit. I conclude with this. In light of all we said this morning and all the scriptures have called us to do as a society of God, all I'm inviting us to be is a non-anxious presence in an anxious time. You may have some tension as to how all this works itself out practically in our socio-political environment. But just remember you're the citizens of a monarchy before you're the citizens of a democracy. And we don't get to vote Jesus in. He's already Lord. We just get to choose whether we obey him and trust him. That gives me great peace. Because I don't have to figure out what to do. I just have to trust them. And love my neighbors. I love myself. And try not to blow that. But let's be slow to speak and quick to listen. Let's refuse to be baited by the news media and social media to dehumanize another person, especially those with whom we disagree. You can call sin what it is. Just don't dehumanize the person, please. Instead, listen to others, especially to those with whom you disagree. The church in America should be a people who are slow to speak and quick to listen so that we'll be a non-anxious presence in anxious time. As Christians, we should live with our eyes wide open to see the pain others feel and willingly join with them there to be listeners. Whether we agree or not, it's not the point. Our Lord is one who knows the hellish depths of pain, yet our pain wasn't lost on him. He joined each one of us there and still does, readily listening to our cries for justice and our fears and all the things that have inflicted our lives. And in view of all of this, I'm compelled to ask this one major question this day after election. Shouldn't Christ followers be the one then to move toward the pain and suffering of others just as God in Christ Jesus moves towards us to go outside the gate? Or should we be the ones clapping and gloating? Or trying to say, well, they're just, they're just whiny because they didn't get their way. And ignore the hurt and the pain and the fear? Because we don't understand it or get it? Well, I'm not going to. I'm a white man in America. There's a lot I don't get. 
But I'm not asked to get it. I'm asked to love them and be with them. And take the hit if necessary. To go outside the gate and share in the sufferings of Jesus. Because that's what He did for me. That's what He did in the Gospels over and over again. Shouldn't Christ followers be the first to abandon the temptation to judge other people's pain and suffering as valid or invalid? Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we be the first to resist the temptation to judge people's pain and suffering as justified or unjustified? Looking to a suffering Savior publicly shamed outside the gate as He carried His death-dealing cross up the hill of Golgotha, shouldn't we be the first to say that pain and suffering is not to be scrutinized or judged, rather acknowledged and healed, even if it appears incomprehensible? Jesus teaches us to be slow to speak, quick to listen, and unwaveringly committed to bearing witness to the healer by entering into the pain of suffering at others. When we do this, those inflicted by the brokenness of our society and all the antagonisms will wash away. And we join them and walk the hard uphill road of reconciliation as taught to us by Jesus to embody the love, mercy, and redemption we proclaim as truth. A community of truth should meet all those in disagreement with a posture of reconciliation because that's what we see in the life of Jesus. So here's the summation of the entire sermon series. This is it. The protest of truth is love for neighbors and enemies. It's not agreement. The protest of truth, what truth screams and embodies when it's the truth of the kingdom of God, is nothing less than love. It's love. So brother and sister, if the candidate you supported won or lost, may you in your grief or relief find it within you to be gracious and humble in whatever feelings you feel without dehumanizing and demeaning others. May all of us remember that no candidate or president can really be the hope of the world or even of our country. Only Jesus as Lord can do that. And we, as the body of Christ, His church, should commit ourselves to proclaim and embody that belief in word and action. May we remember that in a divided country, God has given birth to a family that He calls a holy nation, 1 Peter 2, 9-10, a body indivisible, unbridled in our commitment to love, and dedicated to prophetically proclaiming liberty and restorative justice for all, especially the last least left out and lonely and most vulnerable among us. No matter what comes, may we refuse to be complicit in the injustices that he humanize another fellow human being, and may we at Williamsburg Christian Church, through our words and actions, ensure that all neighbors, regardless of race, class, nationality, sexual orientation, or religion, know that they are loved and welcomed by God and loved and welcomed by this church. And may they be able to tell that on Facebook. May we stop reducing our political engagement to one vote every two or four years and stop believing that the Christian faith will flourish only if government legislation and policies from Capitol Hill make it so. We must be more committed than ever to embody our faith, the politics of Jesus. We must serve our neighbors, advocate for the least, last left out and lonely, beginning in our city. We must share the gospel with our lips and lives, our loved ones, co-workers and classmates, neighbors and enemies in our city. We must pursue restorative justice in society, beginning in our city. We must seek the peace, the well-being of our society, beginning with our city. So I want to offer you a challenge. For those of you who are brave enough and socially relevant enough to be on Facebook, 
just completely contradicted everything I just said. It's a joke. It's a joke. This is heavy enough. I want to offer you a challenge. Do not post a single thing, even remotely political this week. And post only things that promote inclusion, 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 and love. Just do that. Just do that. And let's just see what kind of witness we bear in this church. Just for a week. And who knows, maybe it'll be the way we are. But that's my practical challenge to you. I hope we will give it some thought. If you see me, if you see me post something that you think is the opposite of what I just said, let's say our values together. Love one another for God's sake. Guard one another's backs. Protect one another's personal values. Believe one another's motives. And sing one another's praises. Let's do that. Because I'm going to do that to you. Because you're my brother or sister. Let's promote love. That's the protest of truth.